0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to The Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace, and success. I'm Ashley milne this time, a woman with a long career in public life reflects on what it means to be in her
1: 80s. You can still enjoy a sunset at 85, and so I try to dwell on the thing, on things of beauty. When you know there's not much time left, you have to focus on what really gives you joy and what makes life meaningful. Retired
0: politician Madeleine Cunin comes of age. Coming up on the Broad Experience. We rarely hear the voices of older people in the media, and a lot of us don't have a person in their 70s or 80s or 90s with whom we spend any amount of time. That's a really different situation from the one we had for centuries when we all lived in our hometowns in tight family groups. Some of you will remember I interviewed Madeleine Cunin back in 2015. She was one of two guests in a show called Politics is Power. She is a former governor of Vermont, a university professor and an author. If you haven't heard that show, I recommend it. You'll find out much more about Madeleine's political career there. She is intelligent and thoughtful and a great talker. When I heard she had a new memoir out about growing old, I jumped at the chance to talk to her again. Her book is called Coming of Age, My Journey to the 80s. You may allude to this in the text somewhere, but I mean, just picking my age, when you were in your 40s, did you think at all about being in your 80s?
1: No, (laughs) no, it seemed miles away. I think, you know, until you begin to feel old and reach your 70s or 80s, you still think you're going to live forever. And that uh, old age is a very distant mirage, which you don't really believe is real. And of course, I thought of it in terms of my mother and uh, other relatives, but uh, I felt invincible in my 40s.
0: When did you start? Well, I don't I don't want to assume that you don't feel invincible now. But I suppose, I mean, did you start to feel a less a little less invincible? Was it in the last decade or so?
1: Yes, I I guess so. I, I can't pinpoint a date or or a time. Um, I guess uh, when I began to feel my knees going up and down stairs, I realized something new was happening. And maybe it's uh, bits of memory when you walk into a room to get something and you get there and you can't uh, remember what it was you were looking for. So there bits and pieces that make you feel your age, and then just the number. I remember at 70, I felt 70 was very old. And when I reached 85, which is my present age, it didn't seem related to me. 85 was somebody else, not me. But in the process of writing this book, I took responsibility for my age.
0: Yeah, well, that that brings me to my next question, which is, Why did you decide to write about being in your 80s?
1: Well, I felt myself changing um, my body, my mind, my emotions. And I also felt like a somewhat different person. It's like I opened a new door where I could walk in and be more more, um, self-revealing. Having lived a public life for so many years where what I said and what I did was carefully scrutinized. Um, and uh, a politician develops a certain defense mechanism. Uh, you screen your words through a sieve so that you can omit anything controversial or anything that can get you into trouble. And as I approached my 80s, I... I became more flamboyant. I figured, what have I got to lose? And I could explore my inner thinking and write poetry. I had written poetry off and on, but very sporadically. And suddenly the poetry muse uh, sat on my shoulder, and there she was. And poetry requires time and quiet and sort of sustained thinking, something you can't do ever in public life because you're on a 15-minute chopped-up schedule and you have to go on to the next thing and you also have to be careful. So I sort of enjoy being at the stage that I'm in where I can be more free and more self-revealing. I wonder
0: now watching the um a number of of women have declared as democratic candidates for president in 2020 and do you think that's changed at all do you think politicians can be
1: a bit more real these days perhaps or not really well i think that is to be seen i mean the good news is that there are now four democratic women Running for the Democratic nomination for president. And uh, they can't be targets, I think, in the same way that Hillary was. I think they still have to be somewhat careful, but I don't think they're as easily attacked. I mean, people said to me when Hillary was running, I would vote for a woman, but just not Hillary. I don't like Hillary. Well, now there are four women you can choose from, and if you don't like them all, that makes you (laughs) prejudiced. So I think the variety is healthy. But I did notice that uh, Kamala Harris wore a black suit. She may wear a black suit throughout the campaign because there's only so much you can say about a black suit. Uh, The others will find their own comfort zone But the hope is that they'll stop talking about shoes and stockings and hair and fingernail polish or whatever it is they zone in on. I mean, men just don't get that attention about their attire and because it's assumed what a man will wear, a dark suit, a red tie or a blue tie, and that's the end of the conversation. And... I think one of the reasons people focus so much on how women look is that they're trying to figure out who this woman is who's competing for a man's job. Is she like a man? Is she like a woman? Is she tough enough? Is she likable enough? So there's still some extra baggage that women candidates for president have to carry. I want to go back to you because I want to make sure I cover some of the parts
0: of your book that I was most interested in, most curious about. And um, well, I guess before I ask about this, and you can tell me if this is too too personal, but you parted from your first husband after, you've been married for about at least 35 years, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. And I remember you telling me before, when I interviewed you a few years ago, you said that he was a supportive spouse during your all your time in public office. You probably couldn't have done it if he hadn't been. Right. You were 60-ish when you parted ways. Was it hard to be
1: on your own or was it a relief or both? Well, I think it was hard to be on my own and somewhat a relief. But I think the actual parting of the ways is never easy in any divorce. And I was very fortunate to have a wonderful second marriage, but um, my first husband was supportive of my getting into politics, which I think is essential. Um, It's very hard for a woman to be all on her own through the rigors of a campaign. Uh, I mean, you're doing something very demanding and somewhat unusual still, so a partner has to be with you. But my second husband also supported my writing, and I couldn't have written this book, Coming of Age, without my husband's support. He just was my backup, and that also allowed me to take more risks in what I wrote about. She says he supported her being candid
0: about some of the less pleasant aspects of ageing. Forgetting things, missing sex, feeling self-conscious when you drop food sometimes during a meal. She says she and her husband John made a great team. We'll come back to their late-life partnership in a few minutes. When Madeleine became single for the first time in decades, she was in her early 60s. She had finished her three terms as governor of Vermont. She had also taken on the role of U.S. Deputy Secretary of Education in the Clinton administration. After she divorced, she was appointed U.S. ambassador to Switzerland, the country where she was born in the early 1930s. She was excited to go back, but when she got to her formal residence in Bern, she realised being an ambassador without a partner could be rather lonely.
1: It was a new experience. In a way, I had everything one could want. I had staff, I had maids, I had a chauffeur, I had a chef. But uh, at the end of the day, you are alone. As time went on, I did find some good friends, uh, Swiss friends, who um, I could... Pick up the phone and say, do you want to go to a movie? And we would go. And I also had cousins. And that was a, a great uh, source of strength. There.
0: Still, being a single woman felt awkward at times, especially in such a social role. She writes about a time when there was no available male ambassador to dance with at an annual ball she threw at the US embassy. So a Marine politely made himself available. She left early.
1: I think you know my almost embarrassment uh, applies to women in many situations and I was probably much more self-conscious than anybody else but uh yeah that was that was kind of a hard night but the uh, most of my stay in Switzerland was was happy it was great to uh, come back to the country where I was born my mother brought me and my brother to America at the outbreak of World War II, and um, we didn't know whether Switzerland would be pulled into the war and occupied by Hitler. So, um, and we had the American dream. My mother was very optimistic. She said, anything is possible in America. And uh, that sort of carried me forward. I believed it when we got to the shores of America.
0: Yeah, it was so. Um... It was so interesting. I mean, I'd read a little bit about your childhood in Pearls, Politics and Power, but to read about what your mother went through when you were too young to remember, but your father killed himself. He was depressed and and your mother was left with you and your brother to take care of and, you know, shepherd through the rest of your
1: childhoods on her own. Well, yes, as as I got older, I grew in my appreciation of my mother's courage and sense of adventure I every mean, day. In wartime, she took us both on the ship, which was vastly overcrowded as everybody was trying to leave Europe and brought us to America. She was a gutsy woman, and unfortunately, she never lived to see me in public life.
0: You talk a little bit about your relationship with money and how careful your mother was with money. Now I'm guessing obviously you weren't destitute or you couldn't have come to America, but she so she she must have she she must have had some money to live on but she passed it out very carefully, is that right?
1: That's about right. Yes, no we weren't living in poverty, but we didn't have a big nest egg. My father had been a successful businessman, he imported shoes from the United States and elsewhere. And so there was no panic. There was no suffering. But she knew there was a limited amount. And uh, we were just missing little things that I wished I had, but were essentials, like I wished I had piano lessons. I wished I had ballet and I was not really expected to go to college because my uh, mother and the family didn't go to university in Europe, but I knew I wanted to go to college, so I found my way. In those days, there were no loans, but you could work as a waitress for the summer and earn enough to get you through. Which is just
0: what she did. Madeleine says she felt relieved about money when she married a doctor – Even though she'd supported herself until then, the pressure was off. She worried about money again when they split up. In fact, she sometimes fantasised about stealing a loo roll from a public place, just in case. And she's not the only
1: one. I actually met somebody in one of my interviews who said, I did that, that she uh, stole or was tempted, that's the big word, tempted to steal a roll of toilet paper. You suddenly feel, maybe I won't have enough money. Maybe I won't be able to buy the essentials and here these rolls are right out there. And uh, of course I didn't, but uh, the feeling that, you, your funds are limited, your options are limited, strikes you and maybe strikes a lot of women who are newly divorced who realise now I have to fend for myself.
0: When Madeleine returned from her time in Switzerland, she settled back in Vermont. But she didn't retire. She taught at the University of Vermont and elsewhere. She started Emerge Vermont, an organisation to recruit and train democratic women to run for office. She wrote... And she toyed with the idea of internet dating. She'd heard good things about it, but it felt uncomfortable being a former governor putting up a dating profile. She never did it. Then one day, about 10 years into being single, she met someone. He was someone she knew of. In fact, they'd met years before. His name was John Hennessy, and he'd been the dean of the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. He was a widower, and he and his wife had donated to Madeleine's campaigns in the past. In the mid-2000s, he asked her if she'd like to get involved with an organisation called Americans for Campaign Reform. Now, that doesn't sound very romantic,
1: but... The best decision I ever made was to say yes to that invitation. And it was sort of, I hate to use the word love at first sight, such a cliché, but he... He met two of my criteria. Uh, One, he was a Democrat, and he and his wife had been very active Democrats in New Hampshire. And two, he was a feminist. I mean, he referred to God as she, uh, which I hadn't had developed that habit, but it thrilled me, of course, when he said that. So we were very well matched. And uh, when we met again later for lunch... I happened to have two tickets for the Vermont Symphony. And he was always suspicious if that was true, but it really was true. And I asked him if he'd like to come to the symphony that night. And he prudently asked, What's the program? And I said, Beethoven's ninth. And that did it. So I really have to thank Beethoven. What did it feel
0: like falling in love again, probably 50 years after you did it the first time?
1: It just felt natural. I don't know. It was so easy. You know, when we moved in together, we shared our furniture. Um, We had no arguments, Uh, just as if we were on the same wavelength. Uh, The only thing I had to change was my. I had to give up my dog. Uh, My dog was not a very well-behaved dog and didn't seem to like John. She'd jump up on him. And uh, it was actually a Swiss dog that I but was a herding dog, which is not the ideal house pet. So I faced this quandary, John or the dog. Obviously, it was not much of a quandary. She went to a lovely farm in Montana where she lived happily ever after.
0: Madeline and John got married when she was 72 and he was 80. They travelled to India, England, Egypt, Italy, and lots of other places, enjoying each other's company and the fact they were so well-matched, it was almost like they'd always known each other. He'd come with her on all her book tours and take notes each time. He'd keep tabs on reactions to her speeches. People who saw them together often assumed they'd been together for years. They eventually downsized their home to an apartment in a retirement community in Vermont, that became especially convenient when John's health began to go downhill. He had physical ailments, but he also began to suffer from bouts of depression. How did you find being a carer toward the end of his life? A lot of your time was was really spent caring and worrying that he might fall and worrying about his health.
1: Well, the first eight or so years, we saw the world together. We travelled uh, he was fine. He he, was, he had never been depressed. So this happened towards the end. He was a very upbeat person, and he was a person who took women seriously, um, listened to them, questioned them, and also advocated for them. He w- wouldn't accept the deanship of the Tuck School unless they allowed women to be accepted at the school, so, and he got that. That was the proviso that the school agreed with. But uh, being a carer is really depends on the two people involved. Um, love helps. If you really love someone, you want to help them get better. You want to be with them, and that gave me strength that we had this love for each other. But it's also frustrating at times because there's only so much you can do, even as a loving caregiver. You can't shake off depression much as you try. You can, for a moment, distract and touch and, and be close. But it's, it's a very hard thing to deal with. But I think the most important thing is that you don't give up, that you're cl- close to the person you're caring for, and that you get some respite. I mean, I was lucky that we live a continuing care community, so I had help, which was very important. John died at the
0: beginning of last year. He was 92. Madeleine feels incredibly lucky to have had him in her life. She enjoys good health herself... Which she admits is one of the key components of having a good old age.
1: A lot of your ability to enjoy life as you get older is still dependent on your economic situation and on your health. Though some people conquer both, but it's true. It's much harder if you've got financial worries and if you've got a debilitating health situation. But even then I admit it's harder You can still work around it. I see people in wheelchairs who give me a big smile. So I think the idea is carpe diem, enjoy the day. And my husband and I used to say that to each other, carpe diem. And it's inscribed in my wedding band.
0: I asked Madeline to elaborate on something she said earlier about noticing how much she was changing in her 80s.
1: How so? I'm just more thoughtful, more internal rather than external. I mean, I'm writing serious poetry and to write poetry you sort of have to dig deep. Uh you can't just talk about the obvious and you try to find words and so I find I find that uh, I'm just more introspective and what I also try to do, but I don't always succeed, is to live in the moment, to try to—you um, can still enjoy a sunset at 85. And so I try to dwell on the thing, on things of beauty. And uh, I still read a lot. I am lucky to have good friends. And so when you know there's not much time left, you have to focus on— what really gives you joy and what makes life meaningful. You can't do it every day, 24-7, but you can sort of pinch yourself in it once in a while when you get depressed and say, stop, look what you've got. You're so fortunate.
0: Is there anything that you didn't expect that you actually love about being in your 80s?
1: Well, there... I can still be creative. That I can uh, still enjoy things. It's not what I had pictured in my mind. I mean, I remember going to an eighty-year-old man's birthday party, and thinking, "Wow, that's really old," and expecting him to be decrepit, need help walking, and because I see a lot of that old people with some disability where I live, but. Uh, I also see old people here who are lively, doing things, good conversationalists. So I think it doesn't end at 80 or 85. As long as you're still curious, as long as you're still interested in new things, you can be happy.
0: Madeline Kunin. Her new book is called Coming of Age, My Journey to the 80s. That's The Broad Experience for this time. I will link you to more information about Madeline and her husband and to that last show I did with her under this episode at thebroadexperience.com. I said this a few years ago in a blog post and I have completely failed to do it, but I would love to interview more older women. Maybe you know someone in her 80s or 90s who comes from a totally different background than Madeline who might be a good guest on the show. I'm always open to your suggestions. Shoot me an email at ashley at the broad I'm Ashley Mel Tite. Thanks for listening. See you next time.